Welcome to Greatness, where the world's leading thinkers share their ideas about how to create greatness. Great leaders, great teams, and great organizations. Why be good when you can be great? This is Gretchen Gable, and I am so excited to welcome Friska Wiria, founder of Fresh by Friska, to the Greatness Podcast. Welcome, Friska. Thank you for inviting me. I'm so excited to be here. Well, and I love it when I can appear on someone else's podcast and then return the favor. And um, you and I had the chance to become acquainted a couple of years ago, and I've been Mm -hmm. an admirer of your work. Before we dive into your passions, which we we really share two passions deeply, uh, the ability to help organizations change and to empower women in the world. How, what, what about your life journey brought you to be or caused you to be passionate about the things you're passionate about? Okay, uh, a bit of a loaded question. I guess I'll take the first part, which is empowerment of women. So as you can tell, for the people that can't see um, on the video, I'm of an Asian background. And in that culture, there's not much empowerment of women going on. Um, Mm. All throughout when I was growing up, I was taught that the main goal in life is to have a comfortable life um, and to not go against the grain, you know, marry well, pop out 2.5 kids, et cetera, et cetera, very linear. And I wanted more for myself. And I realized there was more to life than marrying well. And so, you know, I wanted to make more women realize that really the world is their oyster and they don't have to settle for what they think their parents want. I mean, you know, if, if, if anyone's read the top five regrets of the dying, the number mm-hmm. one on that is I wish I had the courage to live a life true to myself. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I'm really passionate about getting more women in the workplace, more women in leadership positions. And then the second part is just about change itself. When I, why I'm passionate about change is because I myself have had to change numerous times when I thought I wasn't good enough, wasn't smart enough, just wasn't enough full stop. So I had to change my own way of thinking, my own beliefs um, to kind of make those step changes in my career and now in my business. And my only regret is not having made that change many more years ago. And mm. so now I'm, it's my passion to help others accelerate change in their lives, in their teams, in their businesses, faster. Mm. Well, and it's so interesting. I mean, that's the the main reason I went back to do my PhD. I really wanted to understand how leaders could create change-ready cultures, mm. uh, that they could create this nimble culture that, you know, we're like Serena Williams standing at the net. We know the ball's coming. We don't know if it's going to go right or left or straight at us, but we know things are going to happen. So how do we create this cultural ability to change. Mm. So when you think about your work in helping organizations change and transform, what are some of the critical things that you've learned over the years about what creates success and potentially what those big roadblocks are that create failure? Yeah. First of all, I love that analogy of Serena Williams. And I just wanted to add to that point that it's not about the big beating the small anymore. It's the fast and the nimble and the adaptable beating the static. I mean, when we think about taxis, if they partnered with TomTom 15 years ago, would there even be an Uber today? You know, well, pro- probably not. So they, I think it goes to show that the power of not staying in your comfort zone, because the opposite of your comfort zone 
is not your discomfort zone. It's actually your growth zone. So there's a lot of complacency right now going on in the workplace, especially in boardrooms and in leadership um, echelons where people are comfortable. They're scared of the unknown, but they shouldn't be. So like any transformation, I really believe that it needs to be start supported and walked and talked at the very top. So leadership is one. Uh, number two is that many, especially large organizations, the way they're set up is just not conducive to change, not conducive to moving fast. I'll give you a perfect example. I spoke at a very large tech company um, nearly two months ago now and was in their system to, for invoicing, etc. Anyway, long story short, I still haven't been paid. And there's so many broken processes that go down the line. It makes it very hard for startups and small businesses to partner with these larger organizations. So they are more adaptable to change. And number three is there's a lot of talk about culture, but less action. And mm. I'm a big believer in talk is cheap. Like Culture change, it doesn't take three, four, five years if you have those foundational elements in place. If you have leadership that are walking the talk, if your systems are streamlined and reviewed and, and removing, you know, any obstacles to change. And and number three, if people have the skills to do it. So we can't ex expect people to um, suddenly be able to act all fast, agile, et cetera, if we don't tell them how. So when we were first, you know, learning how to drive a car, we had to learn the theory first, then we simulated, then we practice, practice, practice. And now it's natural. Most of us get in the car and drive without even thinking about it. Change in the workplace is, is no different. There is that learning curve and often we don't set our people up for success. Mm. Oh, gosh, so many different things to un unpack here. Um, let's dive into culture at that point because, you know, I'm a huge Edgar Schein fan and I studied org culture in my in my Ph.D. And it's it's something that's squishy and not squishy at the same time. And, and, I, and I'm curious about your statement. It doesn't take four or five years because I've seen large um older or more mature been around for a long time companies mm. that have been at it for four or five years and not changed their culture. What are, what are they doing wrong? Uh, I would say most likely they are letting some people who are protected species stay in their positions, even though they don't live and breathe the culture. Mm. Right. If we see, um, toxic behavior, underperformance being tolerated or being ignored, why would we want to step up and exert discretionary effort to learn how to do something new, to learn how to behave in, in a new way? Like change is, it doesn't come naturally to people. You do need to invest the mind space to do it um, effectively. And if we see other people, you know, getting a free pass, so to speak, why would people want to put their hand up and do something different? I was meeting with the CEO of a, of a company that had been on this journey. And I asked him, I said, who have you fired? And he looked at me and he said, well, that's kind of an odd question. And I said, well, somebody's not getting in the boat. Mm. Somebody's not getting on board with things. And I uh, 100% agree with you. If you allow those people to stick around, it really erodes people's confidence that we're serious about that culture change. So a hundred percent agree with that point. What other things are important? Uh, that, I mean, culture itself is a nebulous concept and people find it hard to get their heads around it. So I found the best culture change work happens when you are crystal clear, you provide handrails instead of handcuffs. So I'm actually working with quite a large engineering company at the moment on a culture change initiatives 
and it's underpinned by five principles or areas, shall we say, you know, sustainability, people, et cetera, et cetera. And in there, it's very clear uh, what the motherhood statement is and then what they're going to start doing and what they're going to stop doing. And then Mm. the difference is they are getting people to co-create what those do's and don'ts are. If this is the motherhood Mm. statement, so like tell us what you as an individual are going to start doing versus stop doing. So often Mm. you don't get enough people involved to co-create what that culture change looks like. If it's just pushed Mm. down by leaders, you know, people will commit and support something that they make with their own two hands. And very rarely are people given the opportunity because often there's a misconception, ah, it'll take longer, it's too expensive, et cetera, et cetera. And my reply to that is you can either spend a reasonable amount of time getting people on board and inside the tent or a completely unreasonable amount of time battling resistance all the way. So your choice, yeah. That's so great. And and really getting detailed about um, we're doing this work right now with a mining company about what those behaviors look like and holding people accountable back to your, to the first point about um, not having a zero tolerance for if we're trying to create a psychologically safe culture and people are doing things that, um, that go against the grain for that and they're allowed to, to stay, to lead, et cetera. But, but being very specific about those behaviors. And I think another reason why um, culture change is the perception that it takes a long time, I think it's because it's not brought to life. It's not talked about. There's always something else that's more urgent. Mm -hmm. So I also have a mining company example where they have something called a safety moment. And most mining companies do. They talk about safety at the start of every meeting. Well, if they were serious about culture change, they should have a culture moment. Mm. And you could intersperse that with with the safety moments. But rarely does that happen. Mm. And um, people have very short um, – patience isn't their strong suit. And after three months, they're expecting results because guess what? The quarterly results are in and where shareholders are expecting something. And because culture doesn't happen overnight, uh, often it gets pushed to the wayside. And when people see their leaders not prioritizing something, they don't prioritize something. Yeah. I, I Well, and that segues into our other point of passion, because maybe we should have a diversity, equity and inclusion moment at the beginning of every hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah. I was just um, at lunch with uh, a lady that has her own business doing all things DNI. So workshops, speaking strategies, frameworks, etc. And the challenge that she faces is that the mark of success, if you ask someone, what does success look like for you? It's having a maternity leave policy in place, having a work from home policy. The policy is not the success metric. The policy is the engagement of the people, the numbers of people taking this up. Just because you have a policy, it doesn't mean you're successful. And often that's where it stops when it comes to all things DEI. So it's interesting. I mean, I, I sit on the construction industry culture task force for Australia and now I'm sitting on the uh, Associated General Contractors of America Diversity and Inclusion Committee. Um, and so I'm, I'm hearing a lot about, I mean, and I've spent, I mean, oh my gosh, next year will be the 40th anniversary of starting as an engineering intern at Lone Star Gas. So mm-hmm. for 40 years of experiencing manufacturing and construction, 
how do we empower women in the in the workforce? We were talking about this as being kind of the next wave of needed change in industry. What does that look like? Uh, I think a lot of p- women lack the confidence to step up and stand out and be recognized and visible for the unique, talented individuals that we are. If we're serious about them, it can't just stop at sending sending women on, on a course. Mm. I think sponsorship and mentoring is very important by male champions of change. They have to be pushed into certain roles or push to grow when they're when they think they're not ready because they'll always think they're not ready they'll think they need to check every single box whereas they don't need that like a lot of those skills and etc they learn by doing by experience so those opportunities need to be given more airtime because often and this was true when i was working uh, at a very large engineering company that when it came to oh here's this role come up in russia or germany or whatever who do we know it would be people calling up other people saying, who do you have in your network? Whereas we need to democratize those opportunities because women never see those network, never, never sees those opportunities. So how can we make that more visible so women t- have more autonomy over their own career and personal growth? Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't, I, I think about the fact that early in my career, I kind of needed to have a mentor, but I really never got what it meant to have a sponsor and to really spend time with women in all stages of their career, understanding the critical nature of having a sponsor, somebody that's advocating for you, someone mm. that's making sure when those positions are being talked about, they know what your desired career path is yep. can, and help um, lift you up. And the confidence thing. So we're we've been running this women's leadership program at the pipeline industry and 90% of the participants have um, indicated an increase in confidence, which is, is great. Mm. What, what do we need to do even maybe even from an earlier age to give women the confidence to flourish, especially in male dominated industries? I think the higher you progress up the career ladder, the more important is your, I call it IQ 2.0, your influencing skills are. So it's really investing in those critical skills. So developing trust and rapport, um, interpersonal communication, presentation. This is so important. Like a five-minute presentation at a meeting can speak more about your credibility and your intellect than a 50-page report. And often as women, we're not A, we're not given those speaking opportunities and B, we're not ready for them when they land across our lap. So if I had my time over, I would be investing in those skills much earlier than I did. Mm. And the only reason I did start investing in those skills is because I'm a big believer in, in feedback. I love getting feedback. And I had my first head of role. I presented at, an, at, a, at a kickoff and I asked one of the women in the crowd for feedback. Mm. And, and it started with, if I'm being really honest, I thought, oh, shit, it's never a good conversation when, when that's the first sentence. And she said, look, I really like you. I'm a fan of yours. But for the level you're at, I expected more. Mm. And since then, every year, I spend about $15,000 on my own self-development, mm. whether it's a new accreditation, whether it's a virtual presentation, 
whether it's another framework, like I'm always doing something. Mm. And so the investment that you make in yourself will never steer you wrong. Mm. And often we think that it's up to our organization to do that. Oh, send me on a training course. Da, 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 da. But no, like I think more women should pay for it out of their own pocket, whatever skills that you think you're lacking in. Or if you don't know, then ask someone for feedback, like do a skills audit. Where are the gaps? And work to close those gaps. So when opportunities do come across your inbox or your lap, then you're ready to seize them. Yeah, I think that's one of the passions we share. I'm laughing because I was president of a company and the partners, um, we all instituted a $5,000 person training budget and nobody spent it. Mm. So the next year I hired an emotional intelligence coach for all of us because I was curious about emotional intelligence. This would have been oh gosh, nine years ago. And yeah. I thought, well, we're all going to do this together. And we took them on our retreats together and we did, we learned. And I ended up working with that coach on and off. I ha- I'm still working with that coach on and off for nine years. But it's interesting that that people don't, and it's not just a woman thing, don't really value at times this investment in our own learning. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think that the, the PhD at 50 was probably taking it a bit too far. <laughs> Um, I don't think I'll do one of those, again. but, but the curiosity in this, uh, and, and to me, it's, it's about curiosity, not just the skills gap, but mm. really wanting to live a better version of myself every day. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Skills, especially soft skills. They're not set in stone. I used to think, oh, I wasn't born with the gift of the gab or I'm just not great. Like you can get great at anything, mm-hmm. right? If we, if we could learn to speak English, then we can learn how to present effectively. We can learn how to articulate a compelling vision. We can learn how to lead people through change. It's just a matter of do we want to? Mm-hmm. And if we want to, then I think it's a level playing field. There's so many options nowadays. Well, you, uh, I did two first-time leader programs today. It's a long-term program. And what I say to people is, do you aspire to be a great leader? Mm. Back to your point about, do you aspire to be a great golfer or anything? It takes practice. You have to, but you have to want it. You have to want to be a great leader and then you'll learn. Yeah. You'll keep sharpening the saw. I want to turn to the diversity side of things because I, I had a really insightful podcast with Lee Jordan I'm sitting here embarrassed to say he was head of diversity and inclusion for either Chevron or Shell. I'm thinking it's Chevron. Gosh, your memory banks get so full, right? Yeah. And I read an article he wrote for Harvard Business Review about privilege Mm. and why we should talk about privilege at work. Mm. And during the podcast, um, he's a black man. He said to me, we were talking about the construction industry and kind of the pecking order of privilege. And he said, sadly, I probably have more privilege as a black man than you have as a white woman in the construction industry. But mm. I know that I walk around with a lot of privilege being a white woman in the world versus being Asian, being mm. black. What are your thoughts on that? And how can we, I'm, I'm so present to trying to, I don't even know what the right word is, but, but to try and have empathy for different people with disabilities, people, different sexual orientations, all kinds of people in the world mm. and what they're experiencing that I will never know because yeah. I grew up um, with a highly educated family and a white woman in the world. Yeah. I think uh, <laughs> with empathy and curiosity, I think you will be, you'll go a long way. And it's just a matter of 
being curious, seeking out those stories. Um, and, and for example, growing up in Australia in the 80s, it was really tough. I may sound Australian, but back then we were one of the first uh, Chinese families on the ground. And I've been spat on. I've had broken bottles and rotten fruit thrown at me. And believe it or not, it comes from all sources. It's not just the delinquents hanging around the train station. It's the elite kids at school. It's well-dressed businessmen walking around. So, you know, I think bias and racism come in all shapes and sizes. And I think we just need to be more brave in sharing our stories as well because uh, we're hardwired for stories, right? And mm. and, sometimes, and, even, and even now today, people are like, oh, my God, I can't believe that happened to you. But I'm sure the reverse is true. I'm sure, you know, Caucasian people experience it when they when they live in Asia. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, it is interesting to be put in those uh, situations. Steve Davies, when he kicked off the first women's leadership program for the pipeline industry, standing in front of 25 women was most visibly uh, rattled by the mm. whole thing and said that out loud that, wow, I don't think I've ever stood in a in a room full of only he I knew he never stood in a room entirely of women and yeah I think having that empathy and the other thing I had the the gift when I was working for the global funding network the women's funding network I'll get this right we did a deep course in institutional racism Mm. and I think that's what uh, we institutionalize bias there are institutional things And even in diversity, I was joking, I played in a golf tournament at the National Academy of Construction last month. And for the first time, I drove the golf cart. And it's only because they put the man's Mm. golf clubs on before I showed up and they didn't really know who the other person was, but they always put my golf clubs on the passenger side. It's like, well, I know how to drive a golf cart. So I got to drive one in a golf tournament. It was quite, quite exciting. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> Little victories in life. Uh, Friska, I could talk to you for ages about both the topics of change and how we empower more women in the workforce. For our listeners out there, what are those critical messages? And and first of all, I want to make sure people know how to find you. How do they find you? Where is your website? So my website is freshbyfriska.com or they can search for me on LinkedIn. There's not many Friskas around, so I'm sure I'll pop up there. <laughs> Great. Right. I always want to make sure people can find find our guests. So those, those meaty nuggets that you would like to leave our listeners with. Um, I would say when it comes to change and you're trying to drive change, the first would be look around your boardroom table uh, because those around there can either make or break it. So do you have a castle of complacency or do you have a house of creativity? So mm-hmm. make sure you, you're cognizant of that. Uh, number two is that there's this African fable that I love. It's be wary of the naked man offering you a shirt. So that means if you as a leader are not changing yourself, doing something differently, you can't expect other people to. Mm. And, and last but not least... Um, is get the poison out fast when it comes to change because one toxic person can poison the lake for a thousand others. You may think you can't afford to lose that person, but imagine if you lost the entire team underneath that person. 
Yeah. You can't yeah. afford to keep them. That's what I tell people. Mm. You really can't afford to keep them no matter how much you think they're contributing in other ways to the organization if they don't mm. the culture. Frisco, we're so aligned on so much of our thinking. As I said, I've become a, a huge admirer. I loved being on your podcast. And I'm really excited to have been able to have you as a guest here on the Greatness Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Interested in hearing more? Visit us at greatnessconsulting.com. Thank you.